This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You are listening to Making Life Brighter on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, where we provide you with the latest information in natural healing, consciousness training, and all cutting-edge healing modalities, featuring experts in their field, including authors, musicians, and artists. Making Life Brighter is your forum for healing, inspiring, and uplifting entertainment. Here is your host, Winifred Adams. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams, and today we have very, very special music guest, Mr. Kenneth Kubernick. Welcome, Kenneth. Thank you, Winifred. It's a pleasure to be with you. I am so excited to have you here, and uh, I had the pleasure of not only meeting you at the launch of Guy Webster's Big Shots uh, book launch, which was at Mr. Mr. Music Head's Photography Gallery in Hollywood. That's right. That was fantastic. And and we got to meet there, and I've wanted to sit down with you ever since then because it's been such a pleasure to read through that book, and you were co-author to that book? Yes. Uh, my brother Harvey and I are longstanding uh, writers and journalists who've been covering music in Los Angeles and pop culture for a great many decades. Uh, we are the authors of a great many books about some very well-known musicians of that era. Indeed you are. Yeah. Yes. And it was a pleasure to work with Guy Webster and his photography. It informed so much of the music that we grew up listening to. His covers were part of a, an, another, another note on the records, you might say. And so to have the opportunity to actually work with him on his one and only book, uh, it's interesting. You think of rock photography, you might think of someone famous like uh, an Annie Leibovitz or uh, Ethan Russell or a lot of very famous photographers, and they have a great many books. And Guy was such a, a, a modest soul, and he said, oh, no, no. And finally his family pushed him and said, we need a legacy here, something, a statement. And very graciously he said uh, he would only do the book with my brother and myself because we were the ones that had convinced him that uh, we understood his world well. We grew up with him. We grew up with his music and his covers and his art and his and his sensibility, and he felt that we were the best qualified to really capture. Now, how did you two meet? Because literally it seems like you were meant to do this. It, it's so perfect, the combination of your understanding of music history and mm. your writing style and explaining the stories and all the things, and Guy's beautiful life that was captured by you. How did you meet? Well, uh, Guy had always been out there as a presence. Now, he had, uh, at the height of the 60s, he did something very unprecedented. Certainly for living in a celebrity-driven world, he walked away from all of it, and he moved to Europe for a great many years. He he, he decided he needed a break from the craziness. And uh, as a young student of the music and just beginning to write about music, Guy Webster's name took on a kind of almost magical presence because no one saw him. He was just out there as, where is Guy? Or what happened to Guy? He walked away. What does that even mean? He became a mystery. He became a mystery and a bit of a mystic. He was a very Zen fellow and he followed his own particular path. Okay, so cut to a great many years later. 
And word had come back that Guy had relocated back to the States and back in the 80s and the 90s. And he kept a very low profile with his photography. He was still working periodically, but didn't feel a great uh, pressure to do it anymore. He had made his statement musically. But we were very acutely aware of his contribution and how important he was. And it was in the early aughts that my brother in particular really wanted to track him down for a magazine that he was writing for, that we were both writing for, but he wanted to talk to Guy. And, and word was around that Guy had relocated and set up a gallery, or not a gallery, but a studio in Venice Beach, which he is long associated with. And we put out some feelers and we made some contacts and lo and behold, we were able to get in touch with him. And he very graciously agreed to sit for an interview for a magazine. And it was a kind of a general interview about his history and his relationship with so many of the great artists that he worked with. And that uh, both my brother and I are, are pretty, pretty savvy customers when it comes to working, uh, finding, finding common cause with, with some of the artists that we write about. And there was a real a real uh, copacetic quality there and he felt a real kinship with us and I think he appreciated the fact that we were native Angelinos. I myself was born on Sunset Boulevard so you can say I was almost born to, <laughs> born to run down the Sunset Strip yes and be part of that world so we really grew up in the world that he grew up in or we were proximate to it we knew it intimately and it was we were bred in the bone and uh he felt very comfortable with us, and a few years later passed, and we stayed in touch socially, or you just hear you'd see him, or we talk periodically. And we were in the process of writing a great many books at that point. We had moved from writing about uh, from a journalistic or magazines into writing uh, books, and we both looked at each other and said, "Guy is such an ideal subject. He's never done a book before. Time is of the moment. You know, he's getting a little older, and he's now in his seventies, and." If we're going to do it, we should do it now. Whether well, memory is fresh and he's still vital and still on top of things. I'm so glad you did. Well, we put an overture to him. We just put it to him. Would you be interested? And he, he kind of hemmed and hawed in the guy way, like, oh, it's it's cool, but you know, I'll have to, you know. And then, the, but his family found out, and then his wife <laughs> found uh, out you know, and was pretty keen. Like, guy, we need the book. And uh, he gave us permission to go shop the project. And we found the proper publisher for her, Inside Editions, uh, a wonderful publishing house, an art, fine art f book uh, publisher in the Bay Area in San Francisco, up near San Francisco. And they were very uh, renowned in the worlds of, uh, of film and other kind of cinema book projects. So they were very keen to do an acclaimed photographer that's right in their wheelhouse. And when we pitched Guy, they just jumped on it. And it was sold as soon as they came down to the studio in Venice. And when the publisher himself came and he saw the studio and he saw Guy in his milieu and he said, we need this book now. And we were off to the races. And it took about a year to put together from start to finish. Congratulations, because really what you, you had between you is a consummate trust. Uh, well, trust is everything, particularly... Uh, some artists who have survived the travails of being of the rock and roll lifestyle, some of them love to live in that moment, and they might often uh, speak with a slight grandiosity about it all, and it, and it becomes a, almost a chore because the stories become about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And yes, in theory, it's all very titillating and exciting, and you want to hear the backstage stories. But to read it on the page, actually, it's not very inspiring at all. It, it just sort of lays there like the bummer the day after. Mm -hmm. 
And we're about, uh, my brother and I, we're really about celebrating the work, the artistry. All our books, premium is on the work that's in the grooves, and in this case, uh, uh, on the silver gelatin, as the case may be. And uh, we really want to dial into Guy Webster as a photographer, his artistry, what informed his vision, his eye. And that became the paramount lens through which we presented our approach to the book, And fortunately, the publisher was willing to play ball. Some publishers like you to skew it in a particular direction because they think it is a little more sexy or exciting. They can promote it. You get the dirty inside behind the scenes, you know, some kind of weird TMZ approach. And that is all too common. But uh, Guy wouldn't have any truck with that at all. That wasn't his M.O. Uh, He's a very elegant, distinguished, and and, uh, 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 discreet gentleman. And yes, he has many stories, and he he moved in the world that we can only imagine, and uh, of celebrities and notables and great artists and beautiful women. Cannot leave that out. Guy was a very striking and handsome man, and he had no problem winning the hearts and, and souls of women, and he could capture them with his camera. And of course, they're featured prominently in the book, his photography of women. Uh, is very sensual, but also captured that remarkable 60s California girl sensibility that's become such a remarkable meme, you might say, of our culture. Uh, what is that? That the long blonde hair, the kind of ethereal look, that kind of... And he had the goddessness. He, the he, goddessness. he grabbed mm-hmm. the goddess in those women, and he saw the soul and essence of each one of them. When we did our interview, mm-hmm. uh, just after you and I had met... He told me intimate stories about each one of those subjects and what they meant to him. And that's what was so striking about Guy is he really was present with every single person he ever came in contact with. And, and you captured that in his stories and you, you kept him in, in yet a place where people can reach him. But he's still the king. Well, uh, he is. He's a great artist, and it, it's a privilege. But it's also it can be intimidating to try and capture someone else's voice. It's the challenge of any kind of creative or writerly project you're trying to convey to the reader a sense of what this person is. And uh, writing about photography is uh, reminds me of that famous line by Frank Zappa, who famously said, "Writing about music is like dancing about architecture." <laughs> I mean, he, he was being, of course, typical Frank and being very sardonic and, and, and droll in his own way. But it's actually, uh, to turn it around, it's a kind of a wonderful metaphor in a positive sense, although he didn't mean it that way. But I, I disagree. I think I'd love to dance about architecture. Why wouldn't a building inspire me to start clicking my heels in the same way that writing about music or photography is its own has its own artful dimensions to it and I wouldn't presume to say that we're artful in our writing I I try to get in a good sentence or two here or there but really we're trying to capture Guy's voice and set him up and put him in context so people knew when and where he was doing this and what was happening around him and to him such that it informed his choices that he made because all artistry is a question of making choices this or that, left or right, up or down, what am I going to do? And as a photographer, it's happening very quickly. You're snapping the shutter, and you have an idea, and he tells some wonderful stories. Uh, one of the book's centerpieces is his time spent with the doors. And, of course, Guy most famously took the cover of that legendary first Doors album. 
and uh, which the record label and its infinite wisdom and marketing savvy uh, decided to make the first ever billboard on the Sunset Strip, uh, the first rock album cover. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, since then, look what's taken place. Look what's happened since since that very moment. And and he would often talk about his relationship to that album cover. Well, he uh, was a great student of the music. And Guy, even though he grew up in a very Tony privileged life, uh, the son of a, an Academy Award winning uh, composer uh, in Beverly Hills, Guy very early caught the bug for jazz and blues music. You know, black African-American culture really informed him a lot, and he really related to the blues in particular. And uh, when he was offered the commission to shoot The Doors, they were a completely unknown band, just working as a, a this very somewhat controversial already, but a, a small band working on the Sunset Strip in the club scene there. And uh, he needed to go hear them and see them before he could really envision what he wanted to do creatively to capture them on an album cover. And uh, the first thing he noticed when he went to see them perform is how deeply in, imbued in the Doors music is the blues. Uh, the, the keyboardist of the Doors, uh, legendary Ray Manzarek, the man responsible for all those wonderful lines, light my fire, you know, that organ line that we all know. It's right as famous as anything Bach ever wrote, okay? Well, Ray was born and raised in Chicago. And he spent all his adolescence and young adulthood playing in bands, playing blues predicated on what's called the Southside Chicago style, electric blues. And so Ray always brought a blues sensibility to his playing. And you hear it with the other musicians. And Guy picked up on that. And it allowed him to really feel connected to the music. It wasn't just some this week's pop band, you know, back in the 60s. It Every, wasn't just a photo. No, he, no, no. Guy, guy was absolutely um, fully ensconced in, in the person, in the persons, in the band. But we have to take a quick break. So hold that thought. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and we have much, much more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson, breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions or comments, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. That's radio at makinglifebrighter.com. And now, back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. 
And we're back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams, and you can check out the archives on makinglifebrighter.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes Worldwide, and you can go to Voice America if you'd like, and you can subscribe there as well. We have special guest, Kenneth Kubernick, and he is here today, and I just got the pleasure of watching him speak publicly about not one book, but three books that he has authored, and I am very humbled and inspired by such a driving presentation. It was compelling. It was not only completely full of music history, down to the fact of every person that was in it, the person, the place, the time, everything. But more than that, he moved the room. He just absolutely moved the room. And you just raised the bar on public speaking, I have to say. Oh, well, oh dear. How do I follow that up? You're, you're, you're very kind. Uh, look, um, like anything else, I just try to get out of my own way. I don't, I don't, well, you're passionate. You're so yeah. passionate about music and writing these books. You are so um, in love with music and the subjects that you choose. That is evident, and it was so nice to see that today. Well, I, I'm, I'm a failed jazz pianist, so I have to compensate <laughs> in some way, uh, and I'm able to direct a lot of that passion into not only excavating the history of the music, but also helps to explicate my own life. I, I learn about myself. Uh, uh, it, it's not a completely uh, um, uh, a monastic experience. I mean, writing is sort of like having homework for the rest of your life, and you spend a lot of time alone with your thoughts. You're doing a lot of research. You're 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 cobbling together any source material you can. And if you talk to any writer who does any kind of nonfiction work, uh, the resource, the researching, rather, can very often lead you down these wonderful rabbit holes. And you kind of get lost in them uh, in a kind of Lewis Carroll-like fashion. And uh, it's always a danger when you realize, oh, I've got a deadline. I've actually got to write about this now and do something with it. And I'm, I only really function well under acute deadlines. <laughs> and, uh, and so what I do is I just sort of submit myself to what I was thinking and feeling in real time because I was just fortunate enough to be born at a particular moment in time to be a first-hand witness to so much of what I get to write about now. I couldn't have known that... Uh, uh, the the that my youthful extravagances of of taking the bus from my little home uh, up into Hollywood and 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 marching up and down Hollywood Boulevard uh, into little bookshops and and record stores that used to dot the street back in the day, and and talk and meet these kind of eccentric people that would kind of populate the area would be part of a, an extensive extensive education and introduce me to uh, voices. Uh, literary voices, uh, uh, musical voices, uh, cinematic voices, uh, and it was an extraordinarily golden age. And it, it, it's it's been wrapped up in a big fat bow, and it's called the '60s now. But I didn't know that at the time. I just it was you just lived it, and that's what that was your world, and that's all you knew. It was a Saturday morning where I could literally, and, and this is kind of hard for me even to believe when I say it. I could tell my mother. Uh, I'm going to take a bus and I'm going to spend the whole day in Hollywood. I was 11 years old. Uh, I lived, in, for those of you who know Los Angeles, I lived in the Fairfax district. And it's about seven or eight uh, clicks from Hollywood. And I would just take a bus on my own completely and just uh, submit myself to this wonderful playground that was Hollywood Boulevard. I, I didn't play video games or slot cars or, or join the sports team. I was completely enthralled with kind of popular culture, but not, not 
pop pop, you know, not uh, not uh, teeny bopper kind of stuff. Although I was in that age, I had already uh, became a self-identified outlier without even knowing it and quickly glommed on to some more fringy elements of music and culture and music and the arts and literature, and it all informed my life. Well, you've carried that through in all of your writings. And uh, Kenneth is the author of Big Shots by Guy Webb. Well, with, with, with Guy, with... My brother, Harvey. Uh, we are sort of like, I use the analogy, we're sort of like the Cohen brothers, you know. Uh, we're sort of uh, uh, this team that has a, a kind of very, very mutually complementary way of, of putting these books together. Uh, uh, my brother's a little older than me, uh, four, five, four years or so, almost four years. And so he was able to go to a lot of clubs early on that I could only wait up late at night when he would come home and tell me what he saw. So I'm very envious of him and very <laughs> angry with him that he could see so-and-so at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go when I was underage and they would never let me in. But I was even a bigger fan than he was, although he's a big fan, obviously. And so we always grew up together with this this mutual passion, although our particular taste in music and a lot of things are very different. But we do have a shared sensibility about how to tell a story. And he does one thing very well, and I do something else. So we don't really get in each other's ways when we put this thing together. I like the analogy of movies in this regard, because I get we get asked a lot, how do you guys split it up? How do you, what's your process? Right. Well, uh, I like this. Uh, my brother is a bit more like Scorsese. He's like a director. He's got a big vision, and he likes to cast the movie. And he has certain themes or ideas he wants to get across. And I'm the screenwriter. I'm more like the Paul Schrader fellow who takes the idea and turns it into taxi driver. Okay, Someone's got to write the words to themselves. So I help define the narrative that you actually read. But the both of us share a kind of a vision. So it's very complimentary. So we don't, we really don't step on each other's toes. I go off, he does his thing, I do mine. And at various points, we just come together and, and, and voila. And I can see that. And meeting the both of you together, both uh, at Guy Webster's Big Shots mm-hmm. book launch, as well as, unfortunately, at his uh, memorial, memorial yes. recently in Ojai. Well, we celebrate it, his life. That's correct. Life well lived. Yes, we didn't leave anything on the table. No, no. we didn't. And, and we did celebrate and, and cheer him on mm-hmm. as he went out. But um, the two of you together really have a cohesiveness in your writing. So now you've authored Big Shots mm-hmm. w- uh, with your brother and... Mm-hmm about the life of Guy Webster Mm -hmm. and his photography. You've also just launched a book about the band, and you have a very, very special book that catalogs the history of the Monterey Pop Festival. Yes, uh, we've actually worked on a great many books together. Uh, The first thing we collaborated on was a book about the history of Laurel Canyon, and that sort of set us off. It was a book that was very well-received called Canyon of Dreams, and and there is something very dreamlike and inescapable and ineffable about the whole Laurel Canyon world, the milieu where up in the ladies of the canyon, you know, Joni and Graham and Crosby, Stills and Nash and and Jackson Brown and all these iconic names uh, who and you were kind of always people wanted to hitchhike to come to L.A. so they can go to Laurel Canyon. So there was something very, there was a lot of mystique and magic and mystery about it. And that set us off on our path. And we collaborated uh, right after that on a book about uh, the legendary Monterey International Pop Festival. That was its official name. And this is the pop festival that really not only initiated the legendary Summer of Love, 
1967, which has its own kind of cultural... You, you know, last I, I would show it to you, and I showed it to the, the breakfast, but I, I don't have it here anymore because someone came to me last year. I've had this Beatles run in this radio show, and, and uh, all these people that have had personal, firsthand interaction with the Beatles have been on the show in the last year. And I had a friend come over and give me a Monterey Pop Festival um, lithograph, numbered lithograph, by the Beatles that they hand-scribbled in the studio because they wanted a cover in the actual brochure in the, in the program of the Monterey Pop Festival. So I was entrusted this to focus with it for a year, and I did. <laughs> well, uh, it, it's wonderful. You know, that, I know that image very, very well. Uh, we were commissioned for this book uh, extraordinarily by Lou Adler, who's another iconic name in the history of, of pop culture, pop music, music of the 60s, as a record producer, entrepreneur, impresario. He's, he's, he's had his hands in a great many projects that are very well-known and well-loved around the world, even if his own profile is slightly kind of more behind the scenes. But in L.A., he's quite a well-known presence, of course. And um, he was the co-producer of the festival itself with uh, uh, with the great John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas, uh, who Lou produced all those great hit records that we all love all these many years. And uh, when they were putting the festival together, they had a board of governors and they, they created a little body of like-minded musicians and others from the industry to try and create what they thought was... Uh, something to celebrate the movement of pop music away from being kind of like a teeny bopper pop thing where it's I want to hold your hand, she loves you, Herman's Hermits, all wonderful stuff, lots of fun, great songs, love hearing them when they come on in the supermarket or whatever. But it was very clear that the audience was starting to age her a little bit and the artists were starting to chafe against that kind of pop thing and starting to experiment and explore and grow themselves. And Monterey Pop Festival was an attempt to make the music grown up a bit and acknowledge that pop culture and pop music was was maturing into something more. And amongst this board of directors was Paul McCartney. And Paul could not be there. The Beatles were just putting the finishing touches on Sgt. Pepper. In fact, Sgt. Pepper came out literally four days before the festival. And, uh, or actually, it, was a fr it came out on a Friday, and the festival began the following Friday night. So this was June um, June 10th is when Sgt. Pepper came out, and the opening of the festival was June 17. And it was Paul McCartney's idea um, saying, listen, uh, gentlemen, I can't be there. We can't get it together. And the Beatles were not playing live, of course, at that time. But he said, there's somebody here in London who's really blowing up. And uh, we really, th I really think that he should be at this festival. And his name is Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and uh, Jimi Hendrix was completely unknown in America. He was a... It's hard to believe, really. Well, this is what makes it so extraordinary and why the festival is such an iconic presence in the history of pop culture. Because this is the festival where he was introduced to the world. If you consider America the world, which we tend to do in this country, and if it happens in America, then it happens for the rest of the world. And this is where he famously lit his guitar on fire to an audience that was both horrified and gobsmacked in equal measure. And, and of course, it's been long preserved in some of the most iconic images in the history of pop music. You can find them anywhere. And, of course, in D.A. Pennybaker's legendary documentary, Monterey Pop, which you can watch and see still to this day how mesmerizing and, and transformative it was to watch this artist. And remember, it's important to note 
The audience at Monterey Pop was overwhelmingly white, middle class, mostly young adults now, not teenagers, but uh, in their early 20s, kids going to college, starting to mature and ripen. Politics were becoming an issue. Uh, a feminist, the fe a women's movement, uh, uh, the pill, uh, Vietnam, uh, civil rights. These were all in the air. And they, they were ripe. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio. And we have it all here with Kenneth Kubernick today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson, breast cancer survivor and advocate. She helps by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions or comments, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. That's radio at makinglifebrighter.com. And now, back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams, and today we have a very special guest, Mr. Kenneth Kubernick, and he is the author of Guy Webster's Big Shots Coffee Table Art Piece, and I'm going to call it an art piece because it is not just a, a book about an artist's life, it is actually art itself, and you are instrumental in making that happen. Now you're launching one about the band, and soon to be one about Jimi Hendrix. Uh, yes, I, I, I don't want to say too much about the Hendrix in the sense that it's still forming, okay? Uh, it's hard to believe, but Jimmy will have passed next September, uh, I'm sorry, a year from this coming September. It'll have been 50 years since Jimi Hendrix's comet sped across the night sky. And it really was just a blip. It was three years and out. And it's an extraordinary thing. So next year, uh, the world will be having a Hendrix moment, and we'll be part of it. 
So wonderful. There'll be so many people looking forward to that. And maybe they'll even let you use one of Guy's amazing, iconic Hendrix photos. Yes. Well, now, funnily enough, uh, Guy was very renowned for uh, being what they call a studio photographer as opposed to a concert photographer. But he did happen to have a camera with him one night in 1967, I believe it was August, at the Hollywood Bowl, where the Jimi Hendrix had just come off the Monterey Pop Festival stage, basically, uh, just a month and a half prior, and had become an overnight sensation, viral in its time, you might even say. And um, he was picking up gigs left and right. I mean, everybody wanted to see him instantly. And he very quickly was recruited by the mamas and papas who heard him and saw him, of course, at Monterey. And he opened for them at the Hollywood Bowl in August of 67. And Guy was there and took a, a, a small a series of photographs that capture this young firebrand with this left-handed Stratocaster guitar that he wielded like a, like a weapon, you know, but a, but a good weapon, not a negative weapon, a positive weapon. I wish everybody would brand Weapons of... of- of destruction in a different sense. Well, I mean, he, he destroyed a few brain cells, you might say. I mean, he certainly uh, discombobulated a few people with his approach to playing the guitar and the way he presented his music. But it really, he was just a blues man, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, fundamentally, uh, when you strip away a lot of the uh, showmanship and the, and, the, and the clothing and the fashion and the statement and the times, we tend to get carried away with a lot of the, what I call, externalities. I mean, all the, all the, all the, all the tinsel wrapping, you know, everything, all the... When you, when you throw away the wrapping paper, open up the box, and inside you have the soul of a blues man. And uh, I think that's why his music has stood the test of time, because fundamentally you hear in his guitar playing, in his voice, and the way the songs are structured, something very authentic, and authenticity never dates. I think that's wonderful. And, and Jimi Hendrix is, is one of those people that will be celebrated for many, many years to come, just like the Beatles. Now, you said that when you were a kid, you opened up your uh, 45 player there, and and I say opened up, as in yeah, it yeah. literally had a top and a, and a latch, and you opened it up <laughs> and put the needle on and listened again and again. Tell us about the moment um, that you heard your first record and what that was like for you. Uh, first Beatles record or the first record? Well, the Beatles. I, 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 even though I was a very young and precocious child, I was about nine years old when the Beatles arrived with the English invasion. Um, I had already at that time, even a couple of years earlier, had already started to listen to music very enthusiastically and actually save up my pennies to go to the local drugstore to buy 45 singles of pop artists. Uh, in Los Angeles at that time, we were enthralled by the surf culture. And the beginnings of uh, the Ventures and Dick Dale and all this kind of surf music. And, of course, right after that, we got uh, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boy music. And that really informed us. And we could see instantly that this music was a little bit more uh, subtle and sophisticated, even though it was all kind of singing about girls and cars and whatnot. And, and yes, that is still kind of very adolescent and teenage as appropriate to the time but even then we sensed that the way the harmonies and the voices and we thought oh wow this is pretty amazing and the Beatles arrive initially in the fall of 63 we became aware that there was something happening uh, a clip of the Beatles was, was played on the legendary Tonight Show uh, hosted by then Jack Parr not Johnny Carson and uh, my brother and I being already music uh, devotees without even knowing what that even meant. We were just, we just all we knew. Uh, 
uh, said, oh, this is interesting. And the whole English angle seemed very exotic and, 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 and remote and un, unknowable, almost incomprehensible. And so there it was, uh, what was it, February 8th? I hope I got the date right, or 9th. I'm sure someone will send in and correct it. 1964, uh, the world came to a crashing halt at 8 o'clock on Sunday night, our time. It was taped late, of course, from New York City. And the Beatles premiered on the Ed Sullivan Show. And uh, just prior to that, I lived across the street or just down the street from a very well-known park here in Los Angeles. And I was with all my friends, and we were shooting baskets in the little basketball court that they had there. And uh, we could barely hoist the ball up to the court, but there it is, up to the basket, but there it is. And we just kept looking, asking somebody else. Well, none of us had watches even. We we're just kids, or eight years old, nine years old. And I remember asking the one supervisor there, he's the one with the watch, because he was going to close up the park, and he wanted the ball back. And we said, no, we got to get out of here. The Beatles are on tonight. The Beatles are on tonight. We didn't even really know what that meant. What, what were the Beatles? We had no clue. We had maybe seen a picture or something. And there they were, and they came on stage. And, and it's that moment in, in uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz where the black and white world of Kansas turns into the technicolor of Oz. It was like, that's it. The world has changed forever. And it's just not my opinion. It is, it is consensus now. It is one of those world historical moments in, in our culture and society. And we're still dealing with it. And it's remarkable. For me, I became absolutely devoted. I had a little Beatle badge. And I, I started a Beatle fan club in my friend's uh, garage. And what, what's interesting, besides the utter banality of it, and, and just being so young and foolish, is and how fickle you are at any at very young ages when your allegiances shift like that. That was in February of '64. In June of '64, we were already starting to get a variety of other bands from England starting to come over in the wake of the Beatles in the so-called English invasion. And they were starting to be booked on a variety of TV shows. That was the only way you could see this, these bands. I mean, there was no, obviously there was no internet or YouTube or anything. How did you see any group? There was a couple of nationally broadcast, what they called variety shows. And you would hope every week you'd look at the guide to see, is somebody you just heard about on the radio maybe going to be coming? You had no other way to really find out. Uh, we had a couple of radio stations that were very... Uh, well-informed. And in L.A. in particular, we, we well, well, Los Angeles, that's the pride of place. We were a media capital. So we did learn a little bit more than if I was, let's say, in Topeka, Kansas or Wichita. Um, but uh, in June of 64, there was a, called the Hollywood Palace Show. And its host was Dean Martin. And Dean was, oh, my parents' generation. Oh, we, so we instantly rejected him. He was over 30, so already he's no good. <laughs> he's and, out. Uh, and to prove the point, he had on his show that night a band from London, not Liverpool. So already this was a big deal. Like we were discovering where Liverpool was with the Beatles. Now from London, oh my gosh, even more, more exotic, more spectacular. And this was a band called the Rolling Stones. And as soon as I saw Mick Jagger wearing a gray cashmere sweatshirt on national TV, remember the Beatles were in beautiful Savile Row suits, custom tailored. I mean, it was a whole presentation. It's a very prestigious thing to be on the Ed Sullivan show. You didn't show up in 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 some you know in in, in dockers or jeans. You know, this is a big deal. 
But or a pullover. Or a pullover, yes. <laughs> but the Stones already had that bad boy vibe, and their music didn't sound anything like I Want to Hold Your Hand or She Loves You. In fact, the joke was, while the Beatles were singing I Want to Hold Your Hand, the Stones were singing I Just Want to Make Love to You. And that was the name of the, one of the songs they sang that night on, 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 the, on the Dean Martin Hollywood Palace show. And I didn't know what that meant at all. I mean, what, what, I just knew it was dark and brooding, and there was a vibe, and somebody was playing a harmonica in the band, and he was playing something called blues harmonica. And I just alighted on that sound like, like, oh my gosh, what is that? How is he producing that sound? And why is it having this effect on me? Uh, and uh, it was the blues and the Stones were exponents of the blues. And they were bringing American blues music back to an American audience through the prism of their own English upbringing and their own English cultural take on it. And that was an extraordinary thing to understand. And it took years to kind of figure out what was going on. But at the time, we were just enthralled. I could not know anything about uh, uh, somebody like a, a, a Sonny Boy Williamson or a Muddy Waters or even a, Mud, uh, uh, a Buddy Guy. All these, they'd come from the Delta in Mississippi and Alabama, made their way north to Detroit and Chicago. I say, eight-year-old kid, I'm... I'm that, was, that was a whole world away. Yeah. That wasn't even in the purview. No, but very quickly, though, by virtue of albums, you could do this amazing thing. You could turn them over and read liner notes. And if they were good liner notes with information, you could discover about the band, about the music, their influences. You could discover where they recorded the album, who were the musicians on the record, who recorded the album, the engineer, who did the album artwork, who shot the cover... All of this became part of the of my real textbook education. I had my school responsibilities, and then I had my other education. Well, do you think this influenced you in how you put together a story and write these books that you do today? Well, I'm, I'm uh, absolutely. I, I'm I'm a product of my upbringing and and what influenced me. And and uh, there were certain because uh, we don't have liner notes today no, no, necessarily. No, you, you, if you're lucky, they <laughs> might you might have to go to a separate website or download all the artwork or the liners. But no one does that. Everybody just puts it in a shuffle mode or just streams or just tells Alexa, call up the song I just heard on a Nike commercial. You know, I'm, that is not engagement with music. Uh, that's kind of what I call inventorying the music. It's just an inventory like a, like a, like an Amazon, uh, what do they call it? Uh, placement centers or something yes, or yes, whatever yes. it is. Distribution centers. Distribution, whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know, uh, it's just, it's just, a, it's a kind of turning all of it into a nothing more than just a, a, a product mm -hmm. and a commodity and it's all about distribution and and the brutal irony of course is that the ease of distribution through the digital revolution has made access more to anything more uh, available than in, in the history of the planet and yet we're even more narrow casted in our own particular taste we live in our own little curated silos now so we're almost weirdly more cut off in a very ironic fashion but that's another discussion. It's uh, one where we don't share anymore, and you were inundated by radio, which yes. gave you a focus, a continued focus, and then you listened to an album from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And on that note, we'll be right back. We have Kenneth Kubernick here, and we have more. Stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the Challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions or comments, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. That's radio at makinglifebrighter.com. And now, back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and you can find us on iTunes Worldwide. You can go to makinglifebrighter.com and look, listen to all the archives there. And you can go to the radio page, check out everything. Uh, if you want to go to voiceamerica.com, you can also subscribe there as well. Wow. Have we had a day with Mr. Kenneth Kubernick, and we aren't even done. When we're done with this particular segment, you can go to makinglifebrighter.com and check out the outtake there, which is always super special with everybody we have, and this won't disappoint, I assure you. He has more stories. We could sit here for four hours and talk about all the stories that he has to tell and all of his writing. So he has now launched a brand new book called The Band, and it's about the band. Tell us about the band. Uh, The book is actually called The Story of the Band, From Big Pink to the Last Waltz. And it is an attempt to do two things. Uh, the book was uh, uh, commissioned by our publisher to celebrate uh, in 2018, last year. It came out at the end of last year, 2018, the 50th anniversary of their legendary first album, Music from Big Pink. This is one of those seminal albums of the 60s, again, that seemed to capture that that extraordinary moment where music, pop music, was sort of reinventing itself, kind of rearranging its own molecules, and it was becoming much more sophisticated, not only in terms of the musical sensibility, but that the artists were asking much more of themselves, and crucially, asking more of their listeners. It wasn't just a received wisdom or a kind of a moon and June lyric. It was a real attempt to come to grips with all the things that were happening in our culture at that time, and that was a very momentous period. When we think of the summer of love of 67, it's sort of like put flowers in your hair. By 68, 
things had tra- changed and become very dark and menacing. Uh, there were some real uh, political uh, uh, challenges between challenges. Vietnam and, and well, every, going on in this country. Well, not only Vietnam, our country had turned on itself. We had the uh, Chicago Convention where the, uh, the, the divide, the Black Panther, mm-hmm. but we had a divide between young and old. It wasn't so much north and south at that moment, but that was prevalent too, of course, because we still had massive racial divides. We had the assassinations of, of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, it, 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 the, the 68 was almost a kind of weird, dark, negative inverse of peace and love of 67. It's, a quick, it's amazing how quickly it flipped and turned just around, and the energy was so different, and music, pop music in particular. Yes, of course, there were still the top 40 songs, and we still would lose ourselves in some ear candy that you heard that you loved, but real musicians, real artists... We're saying we need to do more. We need to address more things. And you need to make a political statement. Well, you know, that's an interesting statement because some artists were very uh, outspoken about that specifically. Uh, the band were not. Their political outspokenness was their desire to do two things. And this is my interpretation. It's nothing they said or did. Um, it's my takeaway from their music. They were old-school musicians in a certain sense, meaning they had spent years learning their craft. They had apprenticed with older musicians. They had learned on the bandstand. They had gone through a variety of schools of music. They had studied and played countless, countless gigs, late-night hootenannies, uh, juke joints, all these back, back road joints where people lucky to come out alive. And there they learned the music of the road, They learned the blues. They learned rockabilly. They learned folk music. They learned Appalachian music. They learned the standard pop songs of of Tin Pan Alley because they appreciated the craft of classic songwriting. They loved jazz. They loved American jazz. They loved improvisation. They appreciated the greatness of the the self-expressiveness of jazz. And it was a very volatile time. So what they did with their music is they just kind of meshed it all together through their own particular life journeys. And it came out paramountly in these little three-minute three minute mini-epics where the lyrical stories were very much infused by cinema and literature. Their, their primary songwriter, Robbie Robertson, was deeply devoted uh, to, to growing himself. He was a classic autodidact, meaning he left school very early. He was a professional musician already by age 15. He had left school, and he was already on the bandstand. He was kind of... Uh, observing and watching and very quickly demonstrated his skills as a guitarist that he was a bit of a prodigy. So he didn't have a formal, extensive adult education. He didn't ever graduated high school, let alone college. He was already on the school of hard knocks. He was working on the road. So he taught himself. And he had just enough of an intellectual curiosity that he knew how to find the artists that were most valuable, that could inform his sensibility, that he could write about. So when you read about Robbie's life, you read about a person who was studying European cinema. He was reading uh, great novelists. He was studying a wide range of musicians, from everyone from uh, the songwriting of a Doc Pomus and the blues of a Sonny Boy Williamson to the uh, avant-garde uh, classicism of, of Penderecki at the more extreme, and everything in between. And so he had a great well to draw from. So the band's music already sounded more mature and sophisticated and accomplished, and their... Con- their, 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 their uh, um, 
musicians of the, of the same mind, of the same age, they're confederates. Uh, even the Beatles sounded, I would argue, even a little poppy and kind of light, in a good sense, not like weight, but uh, almost frivolous uh, compared to the more uh, uh, deeply earthy, woody textures of the band's music. And uh, how would you categorize them? What category? Would well, you of course. Today? Well, I mean, uh, categories are always problematic. But I mean, today you would maybe call them a kind of roots rock, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing, because their music so was so much hewn from the earth. You can almost hear the soil. Their drummer, uh, Lee Von Helm, uh, was the one American in the band. Well, they were all North Americans, but four of them were Canadian, and we should never lose sight of that, yeah. okay? Because that Canadian experience helped to find the other musicians. Uh, Levon was from Arkansas, from a little town called like Turkey End or something. I, I forgot the exact name of it, but some right outside Little Rock. But he grew up, he also was the first person in his family to graduate high school. That was a big deal. He was already playing drums professionally, and he wanted to leave school and his people, his family, wouldn't would say, Levon, we're not giving you permission because someone's got to graduate high school, at least in this family. And he stuck around, and then he joined a rock band to see the world. I guess that's what you did back in the day. Mm-hmm. Instead of joining the Marines, you joined a rock band. Uh, but uh, Levon, early on, got the blues bug, and he used to pick cotton as a boy. And he was right there in the Delta, in the fields, uh, uh, near the Tennessee River, um, near Muscle Shoals, Alabama, from Memphis. Uh, He was deeply in that kind of loamy, dark soil that produced this culture, this paramountly black culture, black American culture. Storytelling culture. Is storytelling. Oral tradition. Oral tradition, absolutely. You mimic the voice in your own playing on the instrument. When you listen to the band's solo, when you listen to Robbie's guitar or the keyboard parts, you hear a very idiosyncratic a yearning, a, a kind of warmth and expressiveness that really is human in scale. Very different than a lot of the other English and other American blues players. They didn't quite uh, have that. The band really stood out instantly as being a kind of authenticity that still a lot of bands could only hope for. I can't say thank you enough for coming and being with us today. We could go on and on and on, and you can go on to the outtake on makinglifebrighter.com. And so check that out because we're not done yet. But I have a question I ask everybody when they come to this show. What makes your life brighter? What makes my life brighter? Well, it's the opportunity to share my passions with other people, obviously. Uh, uh, being a writer, I, I like to say, is sort of like having homework for the rest of your life. And no one likes that. And I spend a great deal of my time alone with my thoughts, alone with my research, researches, uh, a lot of books and materials, and you couple it all together, and you're alone, alone, thinking, thinking. So when the opportunity comes to come out of this cave that I've created and then present my work to a larger audience... And to get that kind of feedback, that is kind of justifies it. Kenneth Kubernick, check out the outtake at makinglifebrighter.com. Big shots, the band, and... Uh, a Perfect Haze is the proper title of the book, the official history of the Monterey International Pop Festival. There you have it. Go jolly, everybody. Thank you for listening to Making Life Brighter on the Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to join us every Thursday at 10 a.m. for information, inspiration, and education with leading experts in healing and consciousness. For more information and a complete show schedule, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. Making Life Brighter, successfully helping you feel better. 
from the inside out. Go Jolly! This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.